And one of those, a really important one, is sola scriptura. We get our information from the scripture. So I read a whole article about the purpose, the teachings of the Apostles' Creed, and the first comment was, why didn't the Creed mention the ultimate authority of the Bible? And I'd like to try to answer that today, and it's simply this. Everything we know about the Apostles' Creed, everything we know about the universal church, everything we know about the resurrection of the body is dependent upon the scripture being true and the ultimate authority in our lives. Now, I'm not taking these in particular order at this time, but as I said before, I robbed these statements from James Montgomery Boyce uh, from a monergism website. You're welcome to go there. But let's just look at these five solas and we'll get to scripture a little bit later. When the reformers used words, <clears throat> the word sola scriptura, they were expressing their concern for the Bible's authority. Let me pause there. Folks, if the Bible's not every bit true, we ought to get in some other business. Yeah, we may as well go fishing. Uh, that's so critical. And in 2007, I almost said 2001, I'm about 16 years behind. In 2017, the Bible is not generally regarded as literally true. And if it isn't, we have nothing. The solas mean nothing. The Apostles' Creed means nothing. May as well be the 12 steps to success. Reading on. The Bible's authority and what they meant is that the Bible alone is their ultimate authority, not the Pope, not the church, not the traditions of the church or church councils, still less personal intimations or subjective feelings, but scripture only. Other sources of authority may have an important role to play. Some are even established by God, such as the authority of church elders, the authority of the state, or the authority of parents over children. But the scripture alone is truly ultimate. Therefore, if any of these other authorities depart from Bible teaching, they are to be judged by the Bible and rejected. How do we know that the state has authority? Because they're strong? No, because the Bible tells us so. How do we know that children are to honor their father and mother and obey their parents and, and disobedience to parents is listed with murder and adultery and all those other things that are sinful? Because the Bible tells us. So, so our very basis for even considering what we go on to do this morning is the fact that we believe the scripture alone is ultimately authoritative. <clears throat> I have in my hand a, a copy of the scripture. Uh, I'm not an apostle, but I have here apostolic, apostolic authority. And we need to give ourselves to the authority, the doctrine the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. The second sola that we'll talk about is Christ alone, or as it's expressed, solus Christus in Latin. The church of the Middle Ages spoke about Christ. A church that failed to do that could hardly claim to be Christian. But the medieval church had added many human achievements to Christ's work, 
so that it was no longer possible to say that salvation was entirely by Christ and his atonement. This was the most basic of all heresies, as the Reformers rightly perceived. It was the work of God plus our own righteousness. The Reformation motto, Solus Christus, was formed to repudiate this error. It affirmed that salvation has been accomplished once for all by the mediatorial work of the historical Jesus Christ alone. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and any gospel that fails to acknowledge that or denies it is a false gospel that will save no one. Galatians, Paul says, you've gone after a Another gospel, which is not another, and the word is hetero gospel. It's a gospel that's not good news. It's not just a little bit of the gospel changed, but it's entirely another gospel that's not true. It's hard for us. Most of us have developed our ideas, our philosophy, our understanding from churches that at least say that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. But sometimes, as a matter of fact, I have even been challenged because of, you know, when you get to the book of James or something, you talk about works, you get to Titus, and just be careful to maintain good works. Lots of things in the Bible tells us how we ought to live, and when we get to them, we preach them. And some people say, well, it sounds like you're saying you need to do more than just trust Christ. No, faith alone saves but a faith that's alone is not real faith. Faith without works is dead. As a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works doesn't become faith because of works, but it proves itself to be. And we get to grace alone. <clears throat> Number three, sola gracia. The words of sola gracia mean that human beings have no claim upon God. Think about that. Stop with me just a minute as we try not to read that just yet. Every Bible-believing Christian that I know believe in grace. In other words, by grace, God gave me a chance if I'm smart enough to trust him. That's not grace at all. Grace is an absolute free gift. That is God owes us nothing except just punishment for many, our many and very willful sins. Therefore, if he does, does save sinners, which he does in the case of some but not all, it is only because it pleases him to do it. Indeed, apart from this grace and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that flows from it, no one would be saved. Since our lost, in our lost condition, human beings are not capable of winning, seeking out, or even cooperating with God's grace. By insisting on grace alone, the reformers were denying that human methods, techniques, or strategies in themselves could ever bring anyone to faith. It is grace alone expressed through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ, releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from death to spiritual life. Can you imagine? Now, listen, folks. God not only ordains things, he ordains, he, he ordains the means, too. He's chosen by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I mean, how are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to believe without hearing? We've had that in Romans recently. 
no question about the fact that God uses us to bring people to himself. But what if you and I were like others that I know who imagine that by their efforts, by their striving, by their technique, by the music they play, by the, the effect that they get in a crowd that could actually cause somebody to trust Christ? How would people like that ever sleep? How would you ever lay down at night and you think, oh gosh, I better get up because somebody's going to go to hell if I don't do something. It's all of grace. And if it's grace, it's no longer works. If it's works, it can't be grace. And this was an issue now 500 years ago when Martin Luther nailed that 95 thesis to the Wittenberg door. Uh, it's not much changed. We, have, we live in the same kind of atmosphere today where every religion there is is a religion of works. Only Christ is a religion of grace. The next one is faith alone. <clears throat> and it's odd when you look, well, how can they be alone if there's five of them? But we see in context. The reformers never try, tired of saying that justification is by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. All together, together. When put into a theological shorthand, the doctrine was expressed as justification by faith alone. In other words, when, we, when they said faith alone, it meant by grace alone, through Christ alone. But the vehicle is faith. And Ephesians tells us, and that, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. The article by which the church stands or falls, according to Martin Luther... The reformers called justification by faith Christianity's material principle because it involves the very matter or substance of what a person must understand and believe to be saved. Justification is a matter, is a declaration of God based on the work of Christ. It flows from God's grace and it comes to the, doctor, the individual by, not by anything he or she might do, but by faith alone or sola fide. We may state the full doctrine as justification is the act of God by which he declares sinners to be righteous because of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's good news to me because I'm a sinner. Not only a sinner, but a sinner saved by grace. If you'll notice, we'll get to this as we go forward, if you'll notice that the banners that will and Steve and our deacons managed to get for us that remind us of these truths. They go in an ascending order, not necessarily anyone's plan that I know of, but one part I really like is the fact that soli deo gloria is the pinnacle, it's the top. Because all these others just point to the glory of God, and it's all about God's glory. God's glory alone, number five. Each of the great solas is summed up in the fifth Reformation motto, Soli Deo Gloria, meaning to God alone be the glory. It's what the Apostle Paul expressed in Romans eleven thirty six when he wrote, To him be glory forever. Amen. These words follow naturally from the preceding words, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Since it is because all things really are from God, and to God that we say, to God alone be the glory.
I'm going to give a little background. I think that's all I have up there. I, it's amazing to me. I communicate with Jason on a regular basis, even when he's out of town. And, and he texted me yesterday to say, what scripture do you want? Well, I'm going to read Isaiah 6. I mean, you can put that up from Florida? Well, apparently he got Jeremiah instead, so he dropped the ball there. Uh, but I read Isaiah 6 because it's the verse, it's the passage this morning that reminds us that he's in heaven and we're on the earth, that he's God and we're not, and he's absolutely glorious. And all these other things are wonderful truths because they accurately reflect what the scripture teaches, but it's to God's glory and not ours. So give you a little background. Rome usually tries to clarify its position on these things, saying that Scripture is the authority, but also tradition and the church together create or a compromise, a compromise uh, authority. Vatican II declared it's clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scriptures, and the teaching authority of the church in accord with God's most wise design are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others. That all together and each on its own way under, under the action of the Holy Spirit contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. <clears throat> In other words, need a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, a little bit, and all together we might make it. Man, I believe in Christ alone, don't you? In Christ alone. We sang it this morning. Beautiful song. Protestantism arose in the 6th century in reaction to these claims of the uh, papal authority. In the Middle Ages, most of people in the church believed the Bible and tradition of the church taught the same thing, or at least... They complemented one another. But as Luther and others studied the Bible with greater care and depth than the church had done in centuries, I mean, Roman Catholicism came into being in the 400s. Uh, very difficult to say when there was a Roman Catholic church, but it was well into the uh, fourth century or fourth or fifth century. And Constantine, we know the historical portion of that but but at, by this time in in the 1500s Rome had such a such a grasp on the regulation of all churches that <clears throat> Luther who was a monk never ceased to be a monk discovered that well the authority can't be in that bunch of people we then discovered that tradition didn't always agree with the bible and discovered, and I have examples, about seven of them I'll share with you. Number one, the Bible teaches the office of bishop and presbyter are the same office. We know that. But tradition says they're different, that there's some special folks. There's a hierarchy. That the scripture in First Timothy, if you read Titus chapter 1, you'll find that they're used interchangeably. The Bible teaches that all have sinned except Jesus, Romans 3. We know that, Hebrews. But tradition says that Mary was sinless. And the papal authority then and now still maintain that. The immaculate conception of Mary, how she was born sinless and remained sinless. 
remain virgin. I don't know what happened to other brothers and sisters of Jesus, how that worked out. The point of it is the Roman tradition that pervaded churches for a thousand years at that time taught something different from the Bible. The Bible teaches that Christ offered his sacrifice once for all. Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. When he made a sacrifice, he sat down because he was done, like the priest did. On the cross, he said, it's finished. But Rome teaches that we sacrifice the Mass. The Mass, a holy man-made idea that actually offers a bloodless bodily sacrifice in the Mass. And of course, I know that some Roman Catholics, perhaps some you know, would say, no, we don't really do that. We just, we just reenact it, much like we think of in the communion service. But the official Roman position is that the priest, sacrosanct as they are, literally revisit and re-serve the body of Christ. <clears throat> the Bible says that all Christians are saints and priests, we're a kingdom of priests. I think that's good, don't you? Now, we have a church government also indicated in the scripture. We have elders. We have the apostles' doctrine. We don't have the apostles. But we all are equal. We're going to read Galatians. There's no slave-free, male or female, as far as our priestly office is concerned. But tradition says that saints and priests are special castes. Uh, we've heard some, particularly every time they get a, a new pope in Rome, this, the speculation begins, well, are they going to make so-and-so a... They're going to start the process to make someone a saint? Elevate, what's it called? Beautification? Beautification or beautification? I don't remember. But there's a tradition that's totally unscriptural. In other words, if the, if the papal see, if the head of the Roman Catholic Church has the ability to do that, he didn't get it from the scripture, but if his authority is equal with the scripture, then it must be all right. Sixthly, the Bible says that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Barbara, you remember Mike Brown? Uh, we had the privilege in Puerto Rico of discipling many people, mostly sailor fam, Navy families. We had a, a, a fellow that Will defended primarily because he liked hockey. Uh, and he was from Boston. He was a Roman Catholic. His parents were immigrants from Ireland. He was about as Roman Catholic as you could be. But his wife was a Southern Baptist. And th they were there together and they came to our church and they agreed to let us meet in their home. And we had a program. We in about the third lesson or so, we got onto it. I showed up one night, one evening. As a matter of fact, they had supper for us, and Mike, who agreed to do this, didn't believe what we believed, but he liked us, and so we had an invitation. And that day we came, and they had memory work. So his memory work that day was providential. He said, before we start tonight, I have a question. You know, we've done this lesson. It's the fourth lesson on prayer. 
<clears throat> and I read on about the prayer and everything, but I, I didn't see the Our Father or the Hail Mary. And I said, well, you know, and I had not said one word contrary to his Roman Catholic background up to that point until he asked me. I said, well, Mike, you see, you, you were taught in Roman Catholic schools that, that uh, to worship the Pope and Mary. And he said, no, 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 that's not right. We weren't taught to worship the Pope. We were taught that he was a mediator between God and man. I said, what's your memory verse? He said, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible taught him the erroneous doctrine that he'd grown up with. So tradition says Mary is a co-mediator with Christ. Pray to Mary. I mean, she's got a real end with Christ. Go through her. He won't turn his mom down. Would be funny if it wasn't serious. But this is what happens when you alter or, or dilute the authority of the Scripture. It's not my understanding of the Scripture that's authoritative. It's the Scripture that's authoritative. And last example, the Bible says that all Christians should know they have eternal life. Bob, do you believe that? Do you know you're saved? You can know you're saved? Well, some people will say, well, that's arrogant to know you're saved. Man, I believe Jesus. He said I'm saved. Why, am I, why wouldn't I believe him? Tradition says that all Christians cannot and should not know that they have eternal life. One of my dear friends, who you'll get to meet at some stage, <clears throat> I was talking to him on the phone this week, and he said, Don, you remember? I used to leave work, and I'd look at the sun setting in the west, and I'd think, man, if Jesus came back today, I hope I'd make it. But now, he said, I'm a grace guy now. I know I'm going to make it because my trust is not in my performance, but in Jesus who died for me. The reformers saw that the words of Jesus to the Pharisees applied to their day and they apply to our day too. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Friends, we could do the same thing. I like tradition. I'm a traditional guy. I think you've probably seen that already. Some things I think are traditions we ought to hold on to. But we need to remember that that's what they are. They're traditions. There's some things I like because I like them. But we don't teach tradition as doctrine because our authority is the scripture. <clears throat> now, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about these solas because it's sort of like this. You know how sometimes history is written after the, the events that are recorded in history. Uh, I don't know that at the time any one of the Martin Luther or those that followed him, uh, Calvin Zwingli, any Huss, anybody that we might look historically ever said, hey, here's the five solas. But it's a, a compilation later upon reflection. These were the issues that weren't like they were a, a, a marching order. They weren't written on the church walls, but expressed and looked back upon sometime in history following the beginning of the Protestant Reformation that became the examples of what typified. And you know, <laughs> Martin Luther was 
had the start of the Lutheran church, kind of Catholic light. He wasn't an independent Baptist or a Presbyterian, uh, for instance, but he still believed these things. And sort of like the Apostles' Creed, there's lots of people that come from different kind of church traditions that can cite with honesty that Apostles' Creed. And if they really believe it, they're my brother. They may be out to lunch in some areas that I wonder, how could they believe that? But they believe in him. And they believe that it's by grace through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And I count them as my brother. Now, most likely... The five solas that we have them today emerged from Calvinist theologians, and and all of them were fans of Aristotle. Shows the kind of philosophy. And Aristotle's categories were these: the material cause, the formal cause, the final cause, the efficient cause, and the instrumental cause. Now, I don't know this, and I borrow it from some scholarship that way above my head. But the material cause would be faith alone. The formal cause would be scripture alone. The final cause would be to God's glory alone. But the efficient cause would be grace alone. And the instrumental cause would be Christ alone. I expect that these things did emerge from a, com- from a comparison to Aristotle philosophy. I don't know, but I like them. And you don't get any brownie points for memorizing these. They won't make you a better Christian, but they should solidify in your mind why we believe what we believe. They're a handy recipe, just like the Apostles' Creed. By the way, the Apostles' Creed was written a long time after the Apostles were all dead. It's not like the apostles got together. Hey, boys, let's just write it down a creed to make everybody say it every Sunday. Any more than Martin Luther got his guys together and said, okay, now we need some five solas. The point is these are man-made instruments that express truth. It's sort of like systematic theology compared to biblical theology. It's a system. It helps us to understand. Understanding these things, I think, will help us to, to appreciate and celebrate the 500th anniversary of something that happened that's changed the world. And Jason and I have talked about it. We're going to do something special around uh, All Saints Day or Halloween time as most of our culture thinks of it in honor of that anniversary. So Roman Catholicism had arisen at least by the end of the 4th century. It essentially controlled every practice of corporate bodies of believers. No doubt there were genuine groups, let's call them remnants, who remained faithful, who didn't bow to the Pope in Rome. Some Baptist groups particularly boast that they were never Protestants. Well, when I joined the army on November 1st, 1967, they gave me dog tags. Do you have dog tags, brother? What did you put down for religion? Did it matter? Christian? Well, typically it was RC or P, P for Protestant. You know what I put on mine? Baptist. I ain't no Protestant. I'm a Baptist. So I understand the mentality. There, there are churches that have come down through the ages that were never under Roman authority 
or never at least willingly under, but influenced, yes. When you control the state, you control the army, you control the taxes, you control the churches. And so even those of us who might trace our lineage somewhere other than, than Lutheran or Anglican or Presbyterian and so forth, we're still beneficiaries, beneficiaries, is that the word? Of, of the work of 500 years ago that protested Roman Catholicism. These five phrases are not extensive statement on theology, but they serve simply as a way to explain the content of the gospel as the Protestants saw them in contrast to the Romanism of that day and today. Sola fide, faith alone. Not works. Christ alone, solus Christus. Through scripture alone. Now, we know, and I've read it already from voice, that there's other authorities other than scripture. But all of them are subject to the authority of the scripture. Husband, you're the head of your home. Maybe making a real mess of it, but it's still your responsibility and you have authority. But you don't have authority to be contrary to the ultimate authority, what the, what the constructions for the husband is from the Bible. I am just a country preacher from West Virginia. I have no authority, but I hold in my hands authority. And when I behave contrary to it, you don't have to respect my authority either because this is the ultimate authority. Sola gracia, by grace alone. I love that one, man. Where would we be without grace? I hear the story of the young man who came to the leadership of the church asking for baptism. And, of course, the, I think it was deacons in this case said, Son, would you explain how you got saved? He said, Yeah, I did my part and the Lord did his part. And that worried the deacons. What do you mean by that? So, oh, I did the sinning and he did the saving. Sola gracia, but grace alone. None of us pull ourselves up or help God pull us up. Sola, soli, soli in English, Deo, Gloria. God's glory alone. Historically, these make most sense when we think about what do we as Protestants, if you will, I would rather say Christians. I would even prefer to say gracers. What do we believe? What do we believe that we must do to be saved? There was a Philippian jailer that asked that question. And he said, what, what must I do to be saved? The gospel is not a religion of works, but of religious faith. You can't do anything to be saved. I don't know if any of you know it or not, but Barbara and I have 25 grandchildren. And we may be done, I don't know. But none of those grandchildren did anything to be born. Of course, they had to cry. I mean, they had to breathe. But they had to be made alive. They couldn't make themselves alive. But God saves on the basis of your faith, which is itself based on the work of Christ, and according to Ephesians, is a gift. Of God, lest we'd boast about it. A wonderful thing. 
Thankfully, salvation does not come on the basis of work, but instead on the basis of faith. Sola Fide declares that in addition to faith, you can do absolutely nothing in order to be saved. What must I do? Not nary, airy thing, but exercise the faith that you're given. What must I trust? You got to trust the elders, you got to trust the sacraments, you got to trust the authority of the church, you got to trust Mary, Joseph, and I don't know, anybody else? No, for hundreds of years, nearly every European would have answered the question by pointing to the sacraments. I mean, I got baptized, had Holy Communion, confirmation, whatever the rigmarole might be, and those are not bad things. They just don't save anybody. You trust them for your salvation. Perhaps some would point you to a church, a priest, or even to Jesus. But only a Protestant would say, trust Jesus alone. Sola Christus. Sola Christus is a simple declaration that salvation is not dispensed through Rome, priests, or sacraments. There's no sense in putting up Hope in extreme unction, purgatory, indulgence, or anything else because it simply comes through Jesus Christ. So what must I obey? We need to be obeyed, don't we? we? Obedience is a good word. When the Council of Constance deposed two popes that were arguing, both of them trying to be the pope, this took a sense of urgency who are you going to bow? We've got two popes, and they're supposed to be vicar of Christ. They're standing in Christ's stead. Which one of them is it? So the council deposed them. So then the council become more authoritative than the pope or popes. Though maybe we don't have to obey the pope. Or is it better to simply submit yourself to the church as a whole? Are believers compelled to obey priests in matters of faith? Sola Scriptura says, nope, matters of faith, believers are compelled by no other authority than that of the Scripture. Now, it might be mediated, exercised through real authority, like the authority of the state, or the parents, or the elders. But it's still the authority that's derived from the Scripture. There's no room for a mixture of history and tradition. These cannot restrain the flesh. They cannot bind the conscience. Instead, believers, only ultimate authority is the word of God. So we know that. That's what I must obey. I must obey the scripture. And I must obey those authority over me as long as it not, does not conflict. We ought to obey God rather than man. Here's a good one. What must I earn? Man. Is there any sense in which a person must earn salvation? Can anybody answer that question? Is there any sense in which a, men, a person must earn salvation? And if there was, would anybody be saved? For the Protestant, the answer is obvious. No, salvation is of grace alone. We can't help grace, because if we did, it wouldn't be grace anymore. It's not by works. God didn't look down through the tunnel of time and see the decision you were going to make and then choose you. That's the most 
ludicrous thing, excuse I've ever heard. And friends of mine believe that. That's not what the Bible says. In other words, we're really sovereign. God's good and he hopes you'll do right and he'll really help. I might even cry if you don't do right, but it's still up to you. Man, if it was up to me, I'd be lost as a goose. I believe in grace. <laughs> he doesn't look down through the corridors of time. See how you're going to respond and then rewind the tape and choose you. That makes us God. And we say, sit, God, sit. What must I believe? What must I obey? What must I earn? And last point, and I'm getting there, what is the point? What's the ultimate point? What's the pinnacle up there? Sola Deo Gloria. You know, I've talked to my wife a lot about this. I'm glad I'm not a celebrity because I'd sure mess something up bad. You know, really, I kind of like to. I like to be kind of low key, and maybe it's because I'm a sinner and I like to hide. But man, I sure don't want to rob God's glory to you. I mean, to the point we live the Christian life in such a way that reflects His goodness, and we take the glory for it. We're robbing God, aren't we? Everything we do ought to be ultimately. The point being God's glory. That is the point of the Reformation. Why are those doctrinal differences worth dividing over? I mean, why not? I mean, you know, all roads lead to heaven, right? And everybody's trying to do the best they can. And, and you know, God's going to overlook. I mean, he don't, he, he don't judge nobody. I mean, he's sitting in a rocking chair and he's, he's saying, boy, I sure hope them kids do good. No. All things are for his glory. He declares it. Isaiah declared it. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, man, look at me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. Because people were made for one reason and one reason alone, to glorify God. God is glorified in his creation, in his children, in the gospel, and most particularly in his son. The highest calling on a person's life, the only real calling in a person's life, is that he would glorify God in all that he does. Nevertheless, we always fail to do that, yet God saves us anyway through the gospel that brings him glory. Jason's read it to us many times. I mean, he chose to display his glory by punishing the wicked and by saving a remnant all to his glory. Soli Deo Gloria is a reminder that by twisting the gospel or by adding works to the gospel, a person is actually missing the glory that comes through a gospel of grace, through faith, through Jesus, described in the scripture. The first four questions really function like tributaries. These are tributaries that lead up to the glory of God. They all flow into this one body, the glory of of God. I like the fact that we got that. I don't know if you decided that or what, but I'm glad God's glory is on the highest point there. And all those others tend us that way, remind us these things are for His glory. The solos allow us to create a virtual sixth sola, sola ecclesia, the church alone. It's understood that. The church alone is the place where Christ rules his kingdom and gives gifts to living 
building blocks of his temple. Michael Horton, in the conference I robbed from him, one statement he said, Christians are the church, but Christians also go to church. I mean, think about it. Does that make this really simple sense? And the church must have the word of God. Faith alone, Galatians, I'm reading to you. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law and do do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You see, as wonderful as these things are, they're only examples or reflections of what the scripture actually teaches and no one can can read the scriptures honestly fairly and not see that faith alone brings us to Christ and what about grace alone one of my favorite passages in Ephesians chapter 1 these words blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You know, I don't want to exaggerate my inability, but I ain't real smart. But I'm smart enough to see you can't read this any other way than to believe that God did it all. We didn't help. We were candidates for destruction, and he chose us according to his will. And that's what grace is. And grace isn't anything else. That's what grace is. In Colossians we read about Christ alone. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He has the oldest brother position, not that he was born or created rather. For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The authorized version says, consist. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have might be preeminent. He's the first first in everything. Man, Christ alone. It's a wonderful reminder 
in Latin, but aren't you thankful that it's in English in our Bible so that we can understand it? Scripture alone, 2 Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about that. Paul telling Timothy, listen, boy, you stick to the Bible because the Bible will make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That sounds like scripture alone. Very important, isn't it? And the pinnacle, God's glory, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is there anything that you and I can do that's proper that we cannot do to the glory of God? Can you do your job Can you obey the authority over you? Can you work for the man, so to speak, with a view of bringing glory to God by doing a good job? Yeah. Romans 11, 36, which we've seen lately. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I read this morning. Because it's a passage I love. Would you stand with me as I read this passage again? We're just about finished. And think about this with me. Isaiah was not some yokel from Wayne County like me. He was the godliest man of his day. Important and educated and learned and dedicated. Not just a hairy-legged sinner, but the best of us hairy-legged sinners. And he writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke, and he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Stop right there, Ken. Think about this with me. Have you seen, even in your sanctified imagination, the Lord of hosts. Some English translation said, I am ruined, or I am undone, I am lost. And here's why, I'm, I'm like you all. And he's not like us. All of it's for his glory. Here's your application this morning. And this is a quote from Alistair Begg that, that Jason and Amanda particularly liked. The same grace that brought us into union with Christ has brought us into communion with each other. Hey, God puts people into churches corporately. We worship corporately. 
We think corporately. That's why we have a church government, because God ordained it. And it has a certain authority, but ultimately it's His authority. And if He put us into Christ in union with Him, He put us in co-union or communion with one another. Here's your application points this morning. It's all about God's glory, and that glory is manifested in His church. Three things. Be sure. Be sure about Him and His glory. Be certain that God's in heaven and you're not. Listen to this. God ain't scared a bit. He's not worried. He's God. And we belong to Him. We ought to be confident people. We ought to be the most confident people in the world. Not self-confident, but God-confident. So be sure, be certain. And lastly, be here. No true Christian is obedient without the local body of the church. That's where Christians are. And a benediction today. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And the people said, Amen. Amen. Good morning.